Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 398 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Anna Wilson speaks with Carolyn Sanderson about wild swimming and taking the plunge with her writing, keeping a child's eye view of the world, and how a blog about grief led to the writing of her first book for adults, a memoir of her mother. Anna Wilson was born in Kent and now lives in Cornwall. A former children's book editor, she's the author of more than 50 books for children, including Nature Month by Month, A Children's Almanac, picture books such as The Wide, Wide Sea, and several series for young readers, including Nina Ferry Ballerina, Top of the Pups, Kitten Chaos, and Vlad, the World's Worst Vampire. Her first book for adults, A Place for Everything, My Mother, Autism and Me, was published in 2020, and is a moving memoir of her late mother, who was belatedly diagnosed with autism when in her late 70s. So Anna, here we are, right at the end of Cornwall, which is all about the sea here, really. And Mm -hmm. I know the sea inspires you and that you're quite evangelical about wild swimming. (laughs) Are are there parallels between that sort of taking the plunge and writing? Oh, definitely. Yes. (laughs) I think there are some days when I go down to the sea and I've told myself I'm going to have a swim and then I look at it and go, oh, I don't know. (laughs) It looks a bit grey or it looks a bit swelly. And inevitably I do get in. And once you've taken that first plunge, you're in and it's wonderful and you always feel great afterwards. And sometimes writing is like that. Yeah, you come to the blank page and you think, oh, I don't know if I want to do this today. And you know, but once you've started that first sentence and, you know, kept your pen moving or kept your fingers moving, it's, yeah, same feeling, I think. <laughs> Got your body temperature sorted, yeah. yes. <laughs> so um, you're primarily a children's writer. Strange question, I suppose, but why does one become a children's writer? Because if you're writing for adults, you're essentially writing for beings like yourself, I suppose. And, you know, you have children and we were all children once. But talk a bit about how that came to be and what sort of, I suppose, what sort of reader you were as a child and where you were writer as a child. I was both a reader and a writer as a child, yes. In fact, I've I've still got the early scribbles because my mum kept everything. So my grandfather used to have these big desk diaries that he used for work. And when he'd finished the year, there were inevitably lots of blank pages, you know. So he just used to give me these big desk diaries, I think, to shut me up because I used to spend a lot of time at my grandma and grandpa's house. And uh, it's quite a small house. So to keep me quiet, I'd be shoved in a corner with a desk diary to scribble in. And I filled it with initially pictures and then poems and that was my early writing and reading yeah apparently I was reading before I went to school but obviously I don't remember that but I just read voraciously I was a member of the Puffin Club and I went to Puffin Club conventions I met Roald Dahl (laughs) I decided quite early on that this was the world I wanted to be in yeah I, I didn't know that I wanted to be a children's writer to start with I think I fell into that because I fell into children's publishing so I started off as an editor in educational publishing and I'm afraid to say I found it a little bit dull. And then I just started trying to get other jobs in publishing and, and I got a job in children's publishing and I just fell in love with picture books. So it was sort of in, you know, from that point on, I think, that I decided that that's what I was going to have a go at doing. Mm. What would you say are the qualities that a children's writer in particular 
needs to have. I think there's this terrible perception that it's somehow easier. But I mean, I, I always think one of my mantras is that it's, e- it's harder to write short than it is long. Mm. And very often, and obviously particularly with picture books, you have fewer words at your disposal. So what would you, what would you say to that? And I, I know you've taught creative writing as well. So what do you say about that in terms of the qualities that you need and the, the economy, I suppose? I think the quality is that you need a child's eye view of the world. That's the absolute essential. In fact, when I'm teaching, I say it's the only rule, really, because I don't really like teaching rules for writing. I think the most important thing is to approach it with fun. Any writing should be approached with an element of fun, even if you're writing something serious, I think. But writing for children, I think you have to have that child's eye view. And by that, I mean an inquisitiveness, a delight in the world that we have as children, you know, that ability to just sit down on your haunches and stare at a beetle for ages <laughs> or yeah just sit sit on the rocks and wait for that seal to come up uh, just that curiosity I think is really important and humour you know humour's again that's something that people sometimes sort of think not not easy but perhaps don't take us seriously because you know funny books aren't aren't serious literature or whatever but actually kids love funny books you know they love to laugh they love they laugh so much more than adults so having a sense of humour is important and just letting your imagination run riot. You can write about anything for children. That's the wonderful thing. You know, they want to read about goblins and vampires just as much as they want to read about real people in schools or whatever. For the economy, I would say, I think rewriting is probably even more important as a children's writer than any other discipline. I mean, I say that having rewritten my adult memoir about 10 times, <laughs> so I know you have to do it whatever you're writing. But with picture books... I will write a picture book text and I will rewrite it and rewrite it and hone it down to what I think is its absolute perfect length. And then if I'm lucky, it gets accepted and I start a conversation with my editor and then it goes to layout stage and lo and behold, there are still too many words. (laughs) And then we have to take out even more. And I was looking at the wide, wide sea the other day and that started as what I thought was a fairly short picture book. But now... There's so few words in it, it's, it's incredible. And yet the story's still there because mm. there's so much going on in the illustrations as well. It's like, I, I say to people, it's a bit like when you make a really delicious gravy, you know, and you, or a delicious stew, and you have to reduce it and reduce it and reduce it to get its really beautiful flavours. And I think that's what picture book writing is like, really. Mm. That's such a good analogy, I love that. So I, I, have, I have a copy of, your, of the picture book you've just been talking about, Glorious the wide, wide sea, illustrated by Jenny Lovely. And it's clear that nature hugely inspires you. You're also the author of the annual Children's Almanac, Nature, month by month for the, for the National Trust. And I read a, a lovely blog on your website about a favourite oak tree that inspires you as well. Could, could you write without being close to nature? Oh, I think I'd find that really hard. I mean, I did live in London for a long time when I was working in publishing, and I remember there were times when I'd be walking along the grey pavements of Hammersmith, <laughs> desperately trying to find something green to fix my eyes on. And I, I actually remember this might sound a bit pretentious, but I remember one morning walking along and seeing little weeds poking up through the cracks in the pavement and thinking how amazing it was that nature always finds a way. And actually in lockdown, there was a woman who went around circling weeds and writing the names of them next to them. I think, I think she lived in France, but then it started happening here as well. I thought how lovely that was, that people were seeking it out. Yes, I I find it very, very hard, I think, now. I'm so used to living in nature all around me that I would find it very hard, yeah. Mm. 
Yes, well, you've also written quite a few series books for young readers, a lot of them featuring animals. And uh, it, it made me remember how much, actually, as a child, you love those sort of book series. Mm. You know, with me, it was, you know, Famous Five and Secret Seven and all those Enid Blyton series. Um, you've got the Kitten Chaos series and Pooch Parlour series and Top of the Pups, isn't it, series. And, and I read some of your Vlad the World's Worst Vampire books, um, which I very much enjoyed. It's such a pleasure as an adult. Have, you know, reading children's books, isn't it? What's what's the secret of creating a, a series that that works that, that kids will really embrace and want to collect? Do you think? I think it's all about the main character. I mean, I I do firmly believe that all story hinges on character. Anyway, I think if you don't know your main character inside out and back to front, it's going to be tricky because you need to know what, how they're going to react in any given situation. And as you develop a series, they're obviously going to go through many more trials and tribulations, so you have to sort of know how they're going to react. With the puppy series, the Top of the Pups, that was quite easy because the main character, Summer, was basically me as a young girl, so I knew myself, I knew, and I wasn't allowed to have a dog, so that was how that first book sort of started. I wrote it at the time that my children were desperate for a dog, and I was resistant to getting one. So I had the the two elements of knowing how the mum was going to behave and also knowing how the child behaved. But with Vlad, I spent quite a lot of time developing him, and I realised there was a lot of me in him, and some of my son as well, um, and that he was quite anxious about a lot of things and and about elements of his own personality. But he, he also wanted to embrace them, and there was a sort of a push and pull there, So I spent quite a lot of time working that out and then lots of lists. What should vampires be good at and what can Vlad not do? He's born (laughs) into a vampire family, isn't he? Transylvanian family, but sort of longs to be, in inverted commas, ordinary child and go to a kind of ordinary school, doesn't he? And do normal things rather than having to kind of fly like a bat and drink blood and so on. It's very funny. Yes, he sort of, he wants to be both in a funny sort of way. He wants to please his mother by doing the Transylvanian vampire things, (laughs) which she despairs of him ever learning. But he also is desperate to be accepted in the human world. So it's it's a difficult one for him. So I I think you were talking a little bit earlier, but I I wondered, uh, you you were saying that as a as a children's writer, it's quite important, I suppose, to stay in tune with the reality of, of children, you have a child's eye view. And that's that's quite difficult, actually, isn't it? Because you're, I think your children are sort of older now; they're they're adults. So, you perhaps when they're younger, it's sort of easier, and you're reading books to them, and you're very much in their world. But I guess as they as they get older and fly the nest, you, you you've got to stay, got to stay there to a certain extent, haven't you? Yes, it is tricky. I think I've had a bit of a hiatus where I found that harder. Although interestingly, I've been writing more picture books, so I've gone right back to the beginning again. <laughs> Um, And I found that easier now than I had for a long time. But I've been resistant to writing any more middle grade, certainly, because I think by the time a child is in that time of life, they're speaking in a certain way and they've got certain interests. And certainly when the kids were that age and I was, you know, ferrying them everywhere, I loved the fact that I would become invisible to them and they'd be sitting in the back of the car chattering away to them, you know, either to themselves sometimes or amongst their friends. And I'd pick up these little snippets and scribble them in notebooks. And sometimes they know you you eavesdrop it. Yeah, no, sometimes (laughs) they used to say, you're doing it, aren't you, mum? You've, you've scribbled something in a notebook. What's that? And they used to get a bit cross that they, they knew they were going to end up in a book. Um, so I, I don't have that anymore. But I, I am starting to think it might be fun to 
to go back again and and have a have a go because there's always an element of me as a child so although I know I've got to get the register and the tone and everything right for children of today I think essentially I am a big kid so I'm always going to have that that view on the world really and I suppose there's an extent to which uh, children's books can't be too contemporary you know that one thinks of all those timeless stories that that we love mm. in a in a way they've, they've got to have appeal for uh, well they've also got to have appeal for the adults who might be reading them to children haven't they I think that's really important too yes I think that's why I've never really wanted to write YA because I think YA has to be unless it's set in a different time I think it has to be quite up to date and contemporary in a way that I just mm. know I would sound like I was trying to be down with the kids and I wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> no, <I think. laughs> Those days are gone, I think. <laughs> so you mentioned that you be- began your career as, as, as an editor in publishing. And um, how influential was, was that when you started to write yourself? And why did, why did you make the leap and how did that happen? Uh, well, the reason I made the leap was sort of circumstance, really. So I became pregnant with my daughter and we had to move to France for my husband's job. And so I had to leave my job at Hobb Collins. And I thought I'd be able to sort of pick up some freelance work. But in those days, we hadn't really embraced the idea of working remotely. So people were still wanting to send manuscripts in big envelopes through the post. <laughs> and they didn't want to send them to France. So um, while I was over in France, I thought, well, I could have a go at, at writing because I'd always wanted to um, see if I could get something published. And I started with picture books because that's what I knew about as an editor. And I thought, you know, well, I know how they work, so surely I can write one. And I did manage to get a couple published, but actually quickly found that it wasn't really where I was most comfortable at that point in my writing career. So I started playing around with short stories that actually then evolved into chapter books. Uh, And I was lucky enough to get an agent very quickly. So she was very encouraging in those early days as well. So it was circumstance, really. I wondered, I do wonder if we hadn't had to move to France, I probably would have just taken normal maternity leave and then I guess I would have gone back into publishing and maybe I wouldn't have started writing, I don't know. So mm. So you're, you're also an experienced creative writing tutor now. You, you've taught at Arvon, I think, and the London Lit Lab. And um, so do you enjoy that? And how does it complement the time you spend on your own work? Yeah, I absolutely love it. I didn't think I was going to. I was sort of cajoled into teaching by someone who'd been my mentor for a while, really. And I started teaching at Bath Spa University on the Masters and then undergraduates and picked up some half on work through that. And it's just gone on snowball since then. I've got lots of teaching now, which is wonderful. And I absolutely love it. I love I love seeing those light bulb moments in a writer's eyes where they've been struggling with something and then you have that conversation and you just make a little suggestion and they go, oh yeah, I could do that with my character. And then they come back the following week and say, I did what you suggested and it's all happened. <laughs> and I love seeing my students get published, which has happened. And I also just, I just love the writerly conversations in general. It feeds into my own writing. I was teaching on an Avon course recently and I just felt so enthused at the end of every day. I was scribbling away. I was doing all the prompts with the writers because I was just enjoying it so much. There's something incredible about feeding off one another. So I I do really enjoy it. There are times when I think I'm giving more to other people than I'm giving to my own writing. That can be difficult. Yes, I wondered about that. Yes, (laughs) yes, I can see that that might be a danger. But yes, it is so interesting how as writers we need that, really, really need that solitary time. And it's very, very difficult to work if you don't have that and you don't have the headspace. But 
also there's definitely a place for what you're talking about that sharing of ideas and getting somebody else's brain on a on a knotty issue or, mm. yeah and I think you're also a mentor for other writers too what's what's me- I suppose that's similar but it's kind of supporting somebody for a longer period I suppose yeah so that started when I was working on the master's program at Bath Spa because I was a manuscript tutor which is essentially being a mentor so I would have the students come once a month really with a chunk of work and I would read a couple of thousand words before we met but then you don't go through it like a line edit you just sort of talk more broadly about you know what they're hoping to achieve and sometimes they'll have been in a panic and a writer's block and they won't have written anything but they just come along and they you know pour out their anxieties (laughs) and it's, it's a bit yeah you're a bit of a cross really between being an editor and being a life coach you know yeah. just trying to help them through those difficult periods and then celebrating the highs with them sometimes it's very interesting I was mentoring somebody recently who wanted me to look at a synopsis of her novel and I hadn't read the novel so um, I looked at the synopsis and it was quite flat and it didn't really tell me what the book was about and then she started talking and it was fantastic and I, and after, I said well you haven't put any of that into your synopsis she went, oh no, I haven't. <laughs> but it was having that sort of the woods for the trees point of view and having the yeah. second pair of eyes and being able to then go away and recraft it. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a funny role in a way because you never know what that person's going to bring to you. And it could be that they just want to talk about how difficult life's been and how they haven't been able to write and then you have to try and coax them back to it. Or it could be that they want to talk about a specific element of the writing. It's, it can be very broad. Yeah. It's also, also often about confidence, isn't it? Just instilling mm. confidence in people. As you said, that goes with the life coaching you were mentioning. But but yes, well, I think synopses are so difficult to mm. write anyway, aren't they? Mm. It's almost easier to write the book I've, I've found in the past. Definitely. Anyway, so... In 2020, you published your first book for adults, an incredibly powerful and honest memoir about your parents, and particularly your, at times, highly fraught relationship with your mother. And your mother was belatedly diagnosed with autism at the age of 72, a discovery that, as you show in the book, was both heartbreaking and kind of revelatory, really. Mm -hmm. So the book's called A Place for Everything. So why did you decide to write this, what must have been an uh, incredibly painful experience, really, to, to get all that down? I mean, I've read it and it's, it's extraordinarily moving and, you know, shows just what you went through mm. with both your parents, because your father became ill and died and then you lost your mother not long afterwards. And it was a very, it was a terrible time in your life, really. Mm, yeah, I think I started writing it as a, as a blog, And I started writing it because I wasn't writing anything else. And I was in quite a panic that I couldn't write. I couldn't do funny anymore, (laughs) which is what I'd always done for children, really. And it was a year to the day that my dad had phoned me to say that he had a terminal diagnosis. And I woke up in that morning and I just thought, I've got to record what happened a year ago. And I honestly don't know why I started it as a blog rather than just... Because I journal pretty much every day anyway, so you know why didn't I just write in my journal? But there was something about memorialising that day, really, that was really important. And I wrote this blog, which just told the story of what had happened on that day, and I put it on Facebook just as a, a memorial. And lots of friends pinged me, and I don't normally get many comments on Facebook, but that day I had an awful lot, and people said this is amazing, you know, um, write some more. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to write any more. But I did, and once I I started, I couldn't stop, and it became quite a regular blog. And I thought I was writing about grief. 
And I thought I was also writing about what you do when someone dies, because I was quite angry at that point that you're suddenly thrown into this maelstrom and nobody prepares you for it. Or so it seemed to me at the time, you know, I didn't even know how to get a death certificate or any of those things, how to deal with probate. I didn't know anything about those things. And all of a sudden I was the adult because dad had gone and mum was um, very sick at that point and I had to deal with it all. So writing was has always been my way of dealing with life and I think it was a coping mechanism to start it as a blog. Mm. And then a few people, writers who I really respect, got in touch with me privately and said, you know, there's a book in this. And in fact, my my boss at Bath Bar said to me, what are you writing at the moment? And I said, I'm not writing anything. And she said, well, you are, you're writing this blog and I'm sure there's a there's a book in it. And I thought, well, there's, you know, more than one person has said this to me now, perhaps I should do this. So I, I printed out the whole blog one day and sort of lay it all out and thought, you know, is there a narrative here? That's the real challenge. You know, what am I really trying to say? Because blog posts, by their very nature, they can be quite repetitive in theme, you know, so you, and they're very episodic and don't necessarily have a narrative arc. So it was quite tricky. But then it just sort of took hold of me. I, I don't really feel like I had much of a choice. I, ha- I had to do it. And as I started gluing it all together and writing it out, I realised actually the book wasn't about grieving dad, it was about mum and it was about this discovery that that she had autism and how that had affected everything, not just the past, the, you know, the period of time that I was writing about initially, but actually my whole life had been affected by it with, you know, looking at it through that lens. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's a very long way of saying this. It just it became something that I had to do. <laughs> mm. I think at that point uh, it also becomes a book that's you know it, it's always I think when useful to read about other people going through something that you might be going through but uh, you know that revelatory diagnosis I mean it, that becomes a book that's potentially of use, use to other people who may be in a similar situation doesn't it and that makes it a gives it a kind of I guess a, an altruistic point as well important to get it down for other people too just apart from yourself and and then as you said that you know the contrast with your cheerful very funny children's stories couldn't have been greater did you sort of feel as if you had to become an entirely different kind of writer to do it or did it feel just like another step another stage or another extension of the writer you already were yeah that's a really interesting question I think it was an extension is an extension of my of my role as a writer. I had explored that in writing the blog because I'd explored whether I could convey deep emotion through writing, which I think I sort of had in my children's books, actually, because I'd, I'd attempted to convey certainly that sort of um, early adolescent awkwardness which can be very tortuous when you're going through it. And I'd had sort of, you know, scenes between children and parents that, although they were still funny, still had, I hope, a depth to them. But I'd never really gone properly serious. So, mm. yeah, so it, it was an extension. And, and, and in, a, in that horrible writery way, <laughs> I guess I was sort of quite enjoying it on one level, thinking, you know, how far can I go with this and how can I use the words? There's always that terrible sort of layering when you're a writer I think where you're you're the person and you're experiencing stuff and you're trying to record that but at the same time you're also the writer trying to craft something yes and I remember at the time actually I remember listening to I can't remember the name of the actor but I was listening to the radio and there was an actor talking about grieving his father and he said he remembered his father died and he got the news 
and he was down on the floor in a ball howling and experiencing the grief very deeply but somewhere in his in his words horrible actor's brain he was thinking you're going to need this at some point remember it you're going to need to use it and that really struck a chord with me because I thought that's what it's like writing this book you know I have to keep going back almost like scratching an itch you know keep going back to those really intense emotions so that I can convey them to the reader well, we've we've already talked about all the things you do channel as a writer. Mm. You know, you channeled. You talked about channeling your own childhood mm. and in your children's books. I mean, I, that's just sort of what we do. And and thinking about actually your your picture books, the Wide Wide Sea, which is a a, a lovely relationship between a, a, a young girl and her grandmother, and also grandpa and the and the and the kingfisher, which has this again a lovely child grand grandparent relationship. There's a real, there's a real poignancy to those, you know. There's a real sort of underlying, I guess, you know, sadness about passing of time and changing relationships, isn't there? Which, mm. which you can see how that relates to a lot of things you're writing about in the memoir. I think. Yes, well, they, I suppose the picture books are an extension of the memoir because I wrote them as I was editing the memoir. So that's interesting because I hadn't thought about it like that mm. at all. But you're right. I, I mean, I, when my parents died, I sort of re-grieved my grandmother's death as well. She was really my sort of, my spiritual mother, I suppose, because mm. she did a lot of my upbringing. And then also, yes, grieving the fact that my children had lost their grandparents. So I suppose that is going into those picture books. And it is a very special relationship, the grandparent relationship, isn't it? If you're lucky enough to have that. I mean, they give you a completely different outlook on life and you can talk to your grandparents in a way you can't talk to your parents I mean I see it with my own children with my my mother-in-law you know they'll they'll go off on little walks with her and have chats Mm. and I know they're saying things they wouldn't say to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, that's it's so interesting isn't it because on the face of it that those picture books have little to do with this with this memoir but you know having read both you you I really feel that they come from the same person from the same writer Um, Mm. it makes sense so you can't write a good memoir without spilling a little blood. That that came from, uh, a friend told me about that quote. It was from a speech made by Peter Parker, I think, at the presentation of the, the Penn Ackerley Prize. Do you agree with that? I guess if you were going to do that memoir, you were going to have to go all the way with it, really. Yes, I think that's true. And I think, unfortunately, you also, you don't only spill your own blood, you spill a bit of other people's as well. And that's the danger, is that you are writing your perspective on a story that involves more people than just you so that's the really tricky thing and I did send my early draft to my uncle who features quite prominently in the book he is my mother's brother and to my sister and also my husband got to read it at a very early stage and I said to them if there's anything in it that you feel strongly that you don't want that to be there then let me know and actually neither my uncle nor my sister had anything to comment on apart from apparently I got the a type of wine wrong my sister corrected me on that <laughs> but otherwise they were fine but what, my, wine is drunk yeah. isn't it <laughs> unsurprisingly absolutely yeah. um and then and my husband picked up on one thing that he he wanted me to to remove but um it was minor and I did that and that was fine but I, I did send it off with trepidation because I thought well if they hate it what am I going to do because I still really want to send it out on submission um, so I luckily didn't have to, to contend with that. But I was very conscious of the fact that I was playing with other people's lives. And one of my cousins who features very briefly in it, 
I have been very, I've, yeah, I've used a very light touch with him because I just, I knew that he just wouldn't want to be really featured in it very heavily. So I was, I tried to be as sensitive as I could, but I did realise that it was, yeah, potentially contentious. And then there were scenes where I definitely was spilling my own blood. There was one scene in particular where I'd written it in quite a passive way. I'd just described it. And my editor said to me, she kept coming back to it. She kept saying, I, I need to be in the room with you. You need to make it more active. And I just, I really resisted for a long time. And she was right. And it is a scene that people pick up on a lot. But I can't, yeah, you know, I had to read it out loud once at something and I'm never going to be able to do that again. I almost couldn't get to the end. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it's very hard. Mm. Mm. But I think you just, you can't write worrying about what other people will think. You, you can't do that, can you? Um, no. And certainly not at that stage. So right at the end of A Place for Everything, your, your memoir, you write about trying to find the story. And I think you, you, you mentioned earlier about the, the narrative arc, I think. And you were trying to find the story, both her story, your mother's story, and yours, and to find some sense and meaning in it. Mm. Is that why we all do it, <laughs> what we do? <laughs> I think so, I really do. I mean, I think every book I've written has got a bit of that. When I was writing the Vlad books, I was actually seeing a therapist because I was grieving Dad. And I was writing the fourth Vlad book. And I got to the end and I thought, oh my goodness, I've actually written about my therapist in Vlad. <laughs> and I, I went to one of my sessions and sort of said, I think, I think I've made you an ogre in Vlad the World's Worst Vampire. <laughs> and she sort, of, she sort of laughed. And she said, oh, can I read it? So I sent her the um, early draft. And it's a conversation between Vlad and the butler, who's an ogre, where he's sort of talking about his mum and saying he doesn't think he's ever going to please her and he's never going to get things right. And the ogre's sort of talking her through it. And my therapist said, yes, yes, that's you and me. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that I, I've always tried to work myself out through my writing, whether it's, you know, past grievances from not having a pet. <laughs> so, you know, how I dealt with being bullied or whatever, right through to my relationship with my parents. Yeah. And who'd have thought that would come out in a funny story for, for middle grade readers about a, the world's worst vampire? Yes, I know. It's, it's a bit worrying, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Anna. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. That was Anna Wilson in conversation with Carolyn Sanderson. You can find out more about Anna on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 398, which was recorded by Carolyn Sanderson and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 399, Peter Oswald speaks with John Greening about verse drama, theosophical theatre and the struggles of long-form poetry. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.